Hello and welcome to this week at the movies. I'm Matt. Done, done, done. Oh, I'm Eric. And if you couldn't tell by that humming, we are about to go on an impossible mission. That's because after years of delays, Mission Impossible 7 Dead Reckoning Part 1. Hard to believe that a part one uh, takes three hours, but welcome to 2023. Uh, but that was the big movie that was released this week. And uh, Eric, I know it left you scratching your head in a few ways. So why don't you jump on in and tell the folks what you thought? All right. Well, let's get this right off the bat. The movie is a absolute thrill ride, thrill ride from beginning to end. Everything that they are selling this movie on, the action with Tom Cruise, the stunt work, everything is is as entertaining in funny ways as it is in action and exciting and thrilling ways. And, and on that statement alone, I give this movie like a solid thumbs up, but this is the seventh movie in a franchise. And it's the first one to me that feels very bizarrely like it needed to explain things. It didn't need to explain like what the IMF is and over like the, the, I, we were laughing in our theater, uh, my wife and I, at a very early sequence when a board full of just just government people, like you're not even 100% what their jobs are, are just kind of tossing back and forth and you're recognizing faces. Like, there's Peter from Deadpool 2. There's one of the ladies from uh, Game of Thrones and like all this stuff. And they're just finishing each other's sentences, showing that everyone in the room already knows what they're talking about. And if they're not finishing each other's sentences, it's Carrie Elway's going... So you're telling me and then dumbing down what was just said for the rest of the audience. And there were multiple scenes like this in the movie. And like, so this movie is kind of, they need to dump information at you because they want you to be as invested as possible in these extended action sequences. And they are extended. It's just that they're so well done that I wouldn't cut them down personally. I'm fine with the movie's runtime. But you don't need four train cars of the same action sequence over and over again with different settings. You can do three and it would cut like five minutes of movie or whatever. So there are definitely areas where this could be trimmed, but I wouldn't trim them. There are definitely areas where this movie was spoon feeding the audience and kind of treating the audience like you need to understand this simpler and simpler. But I probably wouldn't change anything. I had a super ton of fun watching the movie. And unfortunately, that's just all I get out of it. In a franchise that I'm a huge fan of, and sometimes I, I usually feel like I get a little bit more, um, just a little bit more passion from the director or a little bit more investment in like the characters. I don't know. I, I'm going with a thumbs up. I have a little more to say on it, but I want to know your thoughts pretty bad. So, Well, I think... Part of it, so so it is a part one, which means it lacks a little bit of a conclusion, even though it is almost three hours long. Mm. I will say, I agree with you in that I don't think they needed the people in the government to explain what the IMF was, except for Carrie Elways apparently didn't know what it was. But you, I will not agree that you don't learn something new about the IMF because... I would say I I never watched the show, so maybe this was a foundational piece of the show. Sorry, I was born in 1981, so I wasn't alive in the 60s and 70s when, when it was on TV. 
I don't well, think I was. I, yeah, there you go. I don't think I realized that they all had um, been criminals of some sort that were given an opportunity to go to prison or become a ghost agent. I feel like that was a little bit of new learning. That's new. Yeah. And at the same time, if you're going to keep going back to that one flashback of the woman that Tom Cruise lost, and now I'm perfectly satisfied they didn't try to do de-aging technology in this because they would have had to to get a mm -hmm. 30 years younger uh, Tom Cruise. And I'm not sure we needed that, but you don't get enough out of that sequence other than Isai Morales shot her. And Tom Cruise was sad about it and apparently got framed for it to. I wanted to know more because they were trying to say this is foundational to who he is and would relate to. I don't understand after the last two movies how there would be any choice for him between he's going to protect Ilsa or the thief that he just met. Unless Talk you're about trying to. Yeah, unless you're trying to say that it's just like a pattern that reminds him of this younger woman, in which case we needed to know more about their backstory and not just pick up with her bleeding out. And I thought it was interesting. She gets like her name in the opening title credits and stuff, but you don't have a lot in that flashback. I don't know if they're saving that for the next flashback. I kind of liked the cold open. Um but a lot of people have pointed out that it then is frustrating that the audience already knows exactly what that key opens and where it is. And they're spending the whole movie trying to find that out. That didn't really bother me that much. Me but... either. Like to me, that's just, uh, to me in, in, in mission impossible, the set pieces are all structured this way. Yeah. You, you are shown exactly how Langley works in the first film before they ever make an effort to go there. They, they've just, what they've kind of done, and I know apparently the leak was, it wasn't intentional. That that opening was supposed to be a part of early filming for the eighth movie, and then there was like a studio note to put it in. So I do feel like they have built up this adventure to this submarine now. It's like a studio thing. note. Two and a half hours isn't enough. Make it 2.45. Yeah. <laughs> put 15 yeah. minutes... Was it a studio um, note that got us the train sequence in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Uh huh. As well? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I did just on a entirely separate note binge watch Project Greenlight, and let me tell you, it does make you think about who is really making some of these horrendous decisions uh, when it comes to to making a movie. I will say this one definitely up the stakes for me in terms of uh, action and adventure. I think this was some of the biggest high, most high concept um, and, and most ambitious action sequences would not just in the trailer. We, you see him do the motorcycle jump thing, but all of the action sequences were really well done and they were probably up to stakes. This is a franchise you mentioned. It's the seventh installment. It's been going since 1996, but I would say it was the rare franchise for me where it just kept getting better, which I'll touch when we go over our mission impossible series rankings later this one is the first one in a while that didn't top previous installments for me. I'm still giving it a thumbs up. I felt some of the length there at the end. Maybe it was just because I had 40 ounces of water and um, 
was really regretting that life choice by the time we were getting to some of the climatic sequences. But also, it was in the same way, I really liked Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, but it started to feel a little bit long at the end, knowing that you weren't actually going to get a resolution to anything. Mm. You were just kind of going to get left... Yeah. In the the middle they tried uh, to of hide the journey, too, but... well, they tried to hide it a little bit in both, and it's not like you don't get something of resolution in that he, he captures like the key and figures conclusive. out what it is. Yeah, it's just now that sets him on the real mission, and I did like the twist. Kind of at the end, you get the voiceover from Henry Tierney and his character that gives you a different framing for everything that Tom Cruise is doing, because you had their exchange in the middle of the film where you think he's just kind of gone rogue. And at the end, maybe not so much. Maybe this was the actual, you know, mission he got sent on, which makes a little, a little more sense. I liked some of the actors. I was really sad that, uh, that Mantis left the guardians of the galaxy to just become a villain. Um, that was, that was I, I'm no. actually that that see that moment really interested me because I feel like there's a twofold way of looking at that uh, Gabriel, the character, looking at Palm Clement even saying, you're going to betray me and you're going to do this. On the one hand, it feels like he's saying, like, I know, like, the future because of that, the entity, like the algorithm. And he's turning on her. But on the flip side, he could be giving her orders. Because she doesn't explain to Tom Cruise why she is helping him. Like, like she does say, like, like, why did you save me and that kind of thing. But she doesn't... She just goes to start helping him. Like, she's following the order. She doesn't explain, well, he's predicting that I'm going to do this, so you need to be aware of da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I feel like she's not done. And I really enjoyed her glee in being a bad guy. And so this little like journey she had of, of just being the, the sort of, I think I'm liking the bad guys this year a little bit more than you. Cause you didn't like, what's his name either? Flat top in dial of destiny. Um, Oh, I really didn't. How, that doesn't even that work. doesn't even compare. I liked Pom Clementif in this, and it's nice oh, to okay. see her in something else. I don't know if people. I was sort of making a joke that Mantis. I don't know if people oh, recognize okay. that she's the actress that plays Mantis in. Oh yeah, I doubt it. Guardians of the Galaxy, because that's such a kind of a different uh, facial facial structure and different kind of performance and everything. Um, I thought she was really good in this. That, Tom Cruise is good in this role. I enjoy him. I like uh, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg for what they do. But I thought this was a really nice um, showcase of a couple of really strong uh, female performances, too. I liked Haley Atwell and what she did. I've really enjoyed Rebecca Ferguson in the three movies now that she's been in that role. Palm Clementif was a lot of fun. She had much more personality than, than Gabriel who was kind of a, the more flat yeah. um, I mean, villain. But I think they're saving him some because he's... Yeah. He's driven by a calculator, essentially. I, I can understand his character. Like, I, I feel like he does enough to make you feel like he does have sort of a lust for violence, but that he's keeping it in check for survival because he's following a calculator. Like, I, I believed what he was doing. It is just kind of a bummer that... Kind of like the the villain in Ghost Protocol, 
it's they're sort of just because they're so committed to their job they're just boring like and that's kind of the thing so i can think he does a good job with what he has but his character on paper is someone who is hitting plot point a and b and c in order and following a plan and it's you know It'll be really interesting when people start betraying people and the human element throws things off, I think, in, in part two. Yeah, which, you know, I thought because they've been working on it for a long time that they'd pretty much be done. But that is unfortunately one of the films that had to pause production because of the SAG after strike. So mm-hmm. there is really no guarantee of when we're going to see it. I think they were aiming for next year, but that seems like that's... As long as they actually pause, yeah, as long as they actually pause these productions and don't continue them until they have their crew functioning and working again, I'm good. It's when we get these movies that are pushed through where they let Daniel Craig write some of Quantum of Solace and they, and they, you know, kind of force, like they start shooting Transformers 2 without a script and go for like multiple weeks before they even have something, you know. That's the kind of stuff from the of the the writer strike we know from like 2008 to that really stung. Well, so. I think though it's impossible now because outside of England, which apparently has rules to like um, House of the Dragon season two, they're obligated to keep going because England doesn't recognize the legitimacy of oh. union strikes. So they're act, uh, but. I think what makes it different, writer strikes happen. That's actually, ironically, how um, we got some of the masterful pieces of Jaws. They were coming up against a writer strike, and that's why Carl Gottlieb, who's a screenwriter, is actually in the movie because they didn't really have a script when they started, and a lot of it got improvised, like Quint's speech about being on the Indianapolis. That was just Robert Shaw because they needed oh, to incredible. shoot something. There's if you watch the documentary about Jaws, it's Steven Spielberg telling you what a fraught production it was oh, yeah. and how much trouble they had with everything. Everything that's now iconic from lines and line readings to the fact you don't see the shark. The shark. Yeah, 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 yeah. All yeah. because nothing's right. They were like yeah. this is going to be the biggest hot mess and it works out great. But some, Which... they've done things without the with the writers on strike but with sag after on strike you don't have on-screen performers either yeah and um it's funny you mentioned like like let's see this is also a kind of a theme of these stories these mission impossible stories things go wrong and human nature and luck you know is is pulls people through and like willpower and whatnot um i i just want to i wanted to say one thing about uh so like you mentioned we learn about the IMF. On the one hand, that element that you talked about of, of learning the way that it functions and that sort of rule that you accept a choice, I love all that. That is excellent world building for things. The kind of thing that I'm picking at is, yeah, when they're in the room with Carrie Elways and they go like, what does IMF stand for? Which we've known since the third movie. I don't Impossible think they actually Mission said Force. it. it they did. Impossible that. Mission Force. And then... And, and and they go on to explain what it is. And he's like, so you're telling me that when no one can get the job done, you just hope someone out in the wind you don't know gets it done. And like, 
he sort of is picking at the whole idea of the IMF and kind of breaking apart. Like, yeah, wait a minute. What is this agency? And you don't, I just don't think you need to do that. I Which, think how just... could he not know? Because I believe in the Alec Baldwin films, they had a congressional hearing about the IMF. I, I, I don't that, know. That one, of my things, one of my favorite things in this whole movie was the idea that there is this sort of thing where in government agencies, only certain people get debriefed and, and have declassified information. So the two agents that are hunting down Ethan Hunt, I loved their, I did not expect to give, to care for that at all, but I loved it. And their whole thing where he's like, yeah, Ethan Hunt and his whole clown show go rogue every couple of years. It's like, that's exactly how another government branch would see them because all they know is for some reason, every couple of years, they get a world alert to hunt down Ethan Hunt. And then that just goes away for no reason. And <laughs> the one guy is like, maybe he goes rogue for a reason. And they're just like, just yeah. And his response was, I'm sure he does. <laughs> he always has a reason. <laughs> yeah, it was that I really, really enjoyed that relationship and that, that concept of them coming back through and like helping them clear the train and just that little bit. I hope that's not over. I hope that is a continuing thread in the next one. Um, but my, my big thing, the big weird hole in the movie that, that itches my brain is, is Haley Atwell's grace. She's excellent. I, again, I would not change this. She was awesome in the movie and I love Haley Atwell and I'm really glad to see her getting to be in like a big, blockbuster and really holding her own but on paper you have a thief who is supposed to be important enough to ethan hunt that the algorithm knows to put him in a, in a room with her and ilsa and make him choose between them and it's a character that has this like hints of importance to ethan hunt who's not in the imf but is a thief but could be inducted into it and in my head, I'm just sitting here as someone who doesn't hate Mission Impossible 2 going, this is Nia Hall, this is Nia Hall, this is Thandie Newton, this is Thandie Newton. I could not shake it because they have this really tender moment and and it, it, the emotional beat works. And I think it's just because Tom Cruise is a great actor. And she says, you don't even know me. Haley Atwell does. And he goes, why does that matter? And the other characters in the room sort of nod and agree. And I was like, I was like, ah, and then like two seconds later, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Benji was the one that stuck with him in the third movie when the entire government went, he like put his neck on the line for Ethan and earned his trust. Luther is the guy who multiple times when Ethan goes rogue is like, well, I'm still with you and I'm with your plan. And you pulled me from obscurity and, and got me into IMF in the first place. And they've been bonded since the first one. It is absolutely true that he has no reason to be invested in Haley Atwell, Lynn Grace. So it was kind of bizarre after a little bit to think like, I feel like they're trying to write a character to fit a whole. And I just, I just, I can't help but think of how much more people are complaining about Rebecca for what happens to Rebecca Ferguson's oh, character. I'm complaining, but yeah. The but only thing that the I weight of that is, is it was Naya versus I know her? Tom Cruise has like, talked about wanting to do these movies till he's 80, but in reality, yeah. I almost wonder if the going back to see 
how Tom Cruise, you know, how Ethan Hunt got into the IMF and drawing the parallels to Haley Atwell's character and having the big ending of this be getting her into the IMF. Are they looking at how they can do Mission Impossible movies? Well, always. I noticed, notably, Jeremy Renner is like, gone. Well, Bing Rames probably, he might, he's not that far off of Tom Cruise age wise. I don't, you know, he doesn't know, do have to do as much running as Tom Cruise these <laughs> yeah, days yeah, yeah. Or, or jump off planes. But, you know, I could see them trying to find a way because Tom Cruise is also a producer here. Um, we did get a couple comments this week, which was uh, fun. Uh, yeah, Frankie says, thought it was amazing, uh, but doesn't think it's any better than Fallout. We will be giving totally our agree. rankings, uh, but I, I don't think it's uh, wrong to say neither of us disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk anime. Says, I feel like the film had a B-movie premise, but everything else was executed. It sure love- was executed. It was- I'm teasing because this is Curtis from This Film Not Rated. Um, um, so yeah, it sure was executed. That is a, a fact. Um, but I assume he meant that it was executed well, like a B movie yeah. executed well. And I've heard that with the AI bot thing, other people saying that, but I mean, like, I don't think this was any more B movie than there's a chimera virus and there's the antivirus and we have to do this and whatnot. And I know that's not the movie to pick when you're doing this, but like the rabbit's foot MacGuffin mystery box that JJ Abrams creates versus the 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 nuclear codes that we have to fake and get to the da, da, da. like it's the same thing i do like christopher mcquarrie and he seems to have it he's had a long time partnership with tom cruise this is now his third mission impossible film that he's directed and he's mm. he's done the best with it i honestly yeah. i've loved me, christopher mcquarrie since uh well he wrote the usual suspects back in the day he was screenwriter for the right. not the director right. um but it Which, was this I mean, movie after that and i don't know why i'm blanking on I'll i'm, I'm gonna say this and I, it's gonna sound like i'm trying to like be right about something or whatever but i don't care the usual suspects from beginning to end looks like it was shot in a studio soundstage it is a hundred percent the writing and the performances in that movie right. well and the the kind of jaw-dropping story moment yeah. so i mentioned we were going to look at our rankings for the franchise since 1996 seven installments all built around ethan hunt eric what is your ranking from one to seven uh best to worst or worst to best best to worst okay starting at number one you're going to have the original I feel like there's something about the atmosphere of those cobblestone streets, the twists and turns of of the beginning of the movie, and the nature you can't recapture of the passing of the torch to Ethan Hunt, where you're letting a character take over a franchise, and like a hero rising out of a world that otherwise he didn't exist in beforehand. And then it's just very competently directed and it has these horrific elements that are in a lot of Brian De Palma movies that you just don't get in any other installment. PG-13, I guess, wasn't as hard set in stone at the time as it was. You know, like, I still get eerily wigged out at just his dream of the glass crunching in the hallway and the guy coming in like, Ethan, and like, like, it freaks me out. 
like and maybe that that is a huge sign that i'm biased from watching it younger all right so fair so that's still your number one that's still my number one right after that has to be six tied with five then four then seven then three then two Okay. Which is weird. Almost, I think three has the best uh, villain. Yeah, poor Philip Seymour Hoffman. I just don't know if they knew exactly how to use him. That's the one that feels the most disconnected from like the core Mission Impossible team. Uh, feels most disconnected. Yeah. You could tell J.J. Abrams missed making Felicity an alias. <laughs> just, he's yeah. like, hey, what if Felicity was in alias? Dun, dun, dun. Um, oh. Thank you, Frankie. I uh, I have to say, I you scared me a little bit um, when he, you said you didn't hate too. I thought it was going to be so much higher, and that. Well, no, it's just I love all these movies. I, I love, who is not bad to me. You know, there are to me there are five. There's one great film, four good films, one okay film, and one Travis Shamockery. Um, but number one for me is Fallout, which is Mission Impossible Six. Uh, I think the the action time. sequences, the story, um, kind of even wrapping up the Michelle Monaghan story, which was just hanging out there after whatever happened in Mission Impossible Three, giving it kind of a a good resolution. I really like Rebecca Ferguson in in that. I liked Sean Harris as the the villain and seeing that come back. Um, I liked him against Henry Cavill, um, who mm -hmm. I thought was was really fun. Number two for me is Mission Impossible 5, which is Rogue Nation. Um, so those are the two uh, first two that Christopher McQuarrie did. Then I actually put Dead Reckoning Part 1 as number three for me. Um, I think the action sequences are really incredible. I don't think the story and character beats rose to the same level as the two previous installments he had done, but it does give me hope. It's almost like, I feel like right after you saw infinity war, it was hard to judge it as a standalone film because you're really only like my appreciation for infinity war changed after Endgame. Yeah. And whenever you have this kind of middle movies are supposed to stand on their own and there was enough good things in here, but it might, change my perspective seeing how it kind of comes to comes to a head and how some of these things that got dropped get completed but we shall see uh then i have ghost protocol which at one point in time a ghost protocol was was my favorite it had some some great uh you know i think that was the first one where they really stepped up their visuals game and their action and intensity game uh then for me is the original mission impossible I like it as a as a spy story. I like the him and John Voight going back and forth. Um, I like it for the time period. I just think in the modern era, they've really stepped up kind of the action and the scope of the movies uh, mm -hmm. that has become more impressive to me. That's Mission Impossible 3, which I actually like J.J. Abrams, despite the jokes I made a few minutes ago. I he, Some of the franchises he's taken over and done are phenomenal. Um, mm -hmm. I loved when he rebooted Star Trek. The Me Star too. Trek 2009 is probably my second favorite Star Trek movie of all time because nothing's ever surpassing Wrath of Khan because of the ending. But 
I, I loved what he did, but sometimes it just doesn't quite work. And you're right. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman too. Um, but I don't know if they made enough out of that. And then way, way beyond those is Mission Impossible 2, which I don't know what they were trying to do with Anthony Hopkins, but it didn't work. And I don't know what they were doing with Tom Cruise's hair, but it's an abomination. And <laughs> I don't know why they picked John Woo to be the director, but it none of it worked for me. Um, yeah. I actively don't like that movie the only reason i own it is because i bought the six pack of mission impossible right right movies. yeah and it happened to be there when we were re-watching it uh to get ready i was like ah yes the endless motorcycle beach fights oh yeah 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 so that one's just just not not a, a favorite i mean i like there are worse movies yeah, there are worse movies out there. I no, I so, agree that MI2 is ultimately the bottom of this super quality barrel of entertainment. But I just like I in my head there's something about me that can compartmentalize because it starts so late. Like you have espionage and gunfire and things in that movie so early. Tom Cruise doesn't do his first wirework kick in that movie until after an hour into the movie. It's like it's like a, a very even espionage Australia interesting setting movie that suddenly goes like at the very end. Plus, I think that movie doesn't age well either because that's the one where Limp Biscuit he does the title theme. Oh yeah, it does. You know, feel dated, Limp, for sure. When the biscuit was a thing, still. So there yeah. are some elements of that movie that are incredibly um, dated, and it also, you know, you talk about. Ethan Hunt and Tandy Newton's character. I think that was one of the very, very different kind of Ethan Hunt. They almost tried to make him James well, Bond-like, and I feel like we have completely moved away from that in subsequent films, so that makes it feel also yeah. more like an outlier. They are trying to tie Ethan into a cohesive character, and MI2, he sticks out like a sore thumb. And so the thing about MI2 is it is really the first movie marks the end of a period in Tom Cruise's career where he's learning and studying under massive other directors. You know, Mission Impossible 2 came out in the year 2000. And 2001... In the year 2000. Okay. So, and he, he did Eyes Wide Shut, was released a year later. But that's like, you know, he did this tour of working with Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, uh, Kubrick... And the only person he didn't work with was George Lucas, but he became a Steven Spielberg regular. And there's just, he's just like studying and studying and studying under people. But Paula Wagner and Tom Cruise are, they were the head of Mission Impossible 1, but he still has Brian De Palma at the helm. Mission Impossible 2, it's like pretty much easily figured out by any of the special features. It was the first big Tom Cruise lead the star like thing. And they didn't, I don't think they knew how to balance that with John Woo being his own action kind of visionary. And I don't think that gelled. I think it was, and that's the thing about why Tandy Newton, it completely makes sense that she's not back is she talked about that scene. There's a scene, if you saw it recently enough, they're on the balcony and he is supposed to send her into like the lion's den and he doesn't want to do it. And he's angry and she's come out and, and said on set, Tom Cruise was upset at the performance she was giving. That anger is directed at her, that actress. And I always thought it was weird because that moment feels very 
real. And, you know, it's one of the scenes that I look at and I go, there's like a good movie here. And then, like in the back of my head, I learned like, oh, okay. So they were really upset. Like she was genuinely. Um, and then she came back and she, she had to redo the scene later. Uh, coming back is with more of like a bitch attitude is what she called it. And, and it wasn't the way she wanted to play it. It was Tom Cruise, like kind of iron fisting it. And of course he is who he is. There's no one like him and he's super talented. And I just feel like people should just know who he is before you go into a production, but he's still the guy that screams at the set. If someone's not wearing a mask, right. And he will shut down production. If someone has something to say, he's in control. He caused the mummy 2017. Okay. <laughs> That's another one I try to black out, but yeah, it never happened. So like, I, I, I would, I can understand Thandie Newton being like, not walking back into that environment, but then them kind of like writing something. It's like, you could. And she's like, yeah, but no, like I, totally fine. And then Haley Atwell did such a good job. And then Tom Cruise earns that with his acting and whatnot. And like, there's just a lot that works in this new movie that like saves that kind of thing. I'm just like mission impossible two is always going to be this orange and blue saturated glaring blip in this franchise that otherwise has a pretty even trajectory of moving forward. So it's, it's bizarre. Well, that'll do it for our uh, look yeah. at mission impossible. You can go check out Mission Impossible 7, which is now playing in theaters. But you know what? If you thought this week was fun, oh. it is here. Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer so, week. Are you doing here. are you doing Barbenheimer or Oppen Barbie? Which are you watching first? Actually, I am seeing Barbie Barbie first. It is gonna yeah. be Barbenheimer. Okay. Yeah, Barbenheimer. I think we're I think we might end up. I, I want to do Barbenheimer, but I think we're going to do Oppen Barbie. <laughs> Either way, it's. I like that they're marketing them together. I think it's going to be fun. Um, you know, I know my wife's excited to see both. We're going to see Barbie on her birthday, and then nice. I'm uh, going to go see Oppenheimer. It's another another long movie. I feel like. Three years ago, when The Irishman was three hours, people complained that, you know, we shouldn't have movies that are that long. Not me, but some people did. Now it feels like that's just becoming routine. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. some of our summer blockbusters have all been pretty long. You know, Across the Spider-Verse was more than two and a half hours. Mission Impossible, two hours and 45 minutes. Wow, there's been a couple other ones I have to think of. And Oppenheimer's over three hours, right? I like, think it's right at three hours. Like 3.05 or something like that? I can't imagine it's a happy story because I watched the documentary about Robert Oppenheimer to get ready, and I was like, right. Yeah. Hooray! Yeah, it's hard to imagine a man that said, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, didn't yield a happy biopic. Right. So the question is, are you going to watch Oppenheimer and then Barbie's going to be a pick-me-up? Or are you going to watch Oppenheimer and then Barbie's going to feel like a dystopian capitalist nightmare? <laughs> so... Well, I'm watching Barbie first. So <laughs> okay. it, won't, uh, it won't invite those comparisons. And then the week after that, we have another set of interesting cross-releases. You have The Haunted Mansion, which just kind of looks fun Disney nostalgia. And it Talk to Me, fun. which they've said is the most terrifying movie in a decade. Like, oh. Talk to Me is not out yet 
I thought I was 28th, missing it. 28th. See, this is what you come here for is the quality of knowledge. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's it. Exactly. <laughs> well, whether it's Mission Impossible or you dive into the Barbenheim waters, we will see you at the movies.